well, it is the Library of Congress, and this is a national library, and these are treasures that belong to the people of the country. These, this is their history and their culture. Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, Rose Reed. And today we are speaking with the director of the Library of Congress, Dr. Carla Hayden. This is not just this place with all of these wonderful treasures. For scholars, it's for everyone. Carlo became the 14th Librarian of Congress in 2016. Nominated by President Barack Obama, Carla is the first woman and the first African-American to lead the National Library. She began her career as a children's librarian at the Chicago Public Library, and that's where she worked her way up to become the Deputy Commissioner and Chief Librarian. Carla then became the director of Baltimore's Public Library and served as the president of the American Library Association. So as the director of the Library of Congress, Carla is in charge of running the largest library in the world with over 162 million items. She also oversees the U.S. Copyright Office, and in her role, she selects the Poet Laureate every year and awards the Gershwin Prize for Popular Song. Carla is only the third person in her role since its inception that has had experience as a librarian. She's the daughter of classical musicians, and after her parents' divorce when she was young, she describes the stack of books and libraries as a sanctuary. My love of libraries began with Elizabeth Taylor when she played a fictionalized version of Cleopatra berating Caesar after he burned the Library of Alexandria. How dare you and the rest of your barbarians set fire to my library? Neither you nor any other barbarian has the right to destroy one human thought. And so it's really this ancient role, this steward of our past and this guardian of the history of human thought that's really intrigued me. And I wanted to interview Dr. Carla Hayden since the beginning of the show. And I wanted the opportunity to nerd out about history and artifacts. We connected over the phone with me in New York and Carla in Baltimore. She, like many Americans, are still working from home. And I started by asking her about her quarantine experience, how she and her colleagues are running the world's largest library remotely. Well, it certainly has helped uh, me work with my library colleagues on the need to make more things available online. And we look and we say we have millions of items, what goes first. It really, I think, crystallized for me in talking with my uh, colleagues that we've been almost accelerated into this digital presence and the need to make sure that people, wherever they are, can view the materials. And so that, that sense of urgency now is reinforced because look what, look what, Look what's happening. That's how people have to get information now. You're the first African-American to serve as a director of Library of Congress, also the first woman, and both as um, a person of color and women have not just been excluded from learning, but their stories have been repressed and even their true histories are seen as a threat. What are some stories that you've uncovered during your work that made you think about humanity uh, in a different light? As the first uh, person of color to head the Library of Congress, the world's largest library, the symbol of 
knowledge and information is the fact that I'm descended from people who were by law denied the opportunity to read. There's a wonderful uh, passage in Alberto Manguel's The History of Reading. It's called uh, Forbidden Reading. And I could almost quote it by word as centuries of slave owners, dictators, and other illicit holders of power have always known an illiterate crowd is the easiest to rule. And if you cannot prevent people from learning to read, the next best recourse is to limit its scope. And he goes on in that chapter talking about book burning and censorship and all that it's been known that you want to keep information and knowledge away from a people if you want to suppress them. And so that resonated so much with me in terms of what it means to have a person uh, who represents a group that had been repressed to be heading up this symbol of knowledge. And then as a woman, uh, I come from librarianship, one of what they call the four feminized professions where 85 to 95% of the workforce is made up of females and the top management does not reflect that. And so to be a woman in this position, the first woman after 220 years of the Library of Congress, let's just say my uh, librarian colleagues are pretty happy. <laughs> you were nominated by President Barack Obama. How is this a bipartisan role and how is this not? It's a very bipartisan role because it is the Library of Congress, and that's the entire Congress. And so you are a presidential nominee, but once you accept the position, that your role becomes you are the, the nation's library. You, libraries are universal, and they are in every community, and it doesn't matter what your background is. They are those opportunity centers in rural areas, on uh, reservations, in big cities, you will find there are more libraries, as you probably know, public libraries than uh, a popular food chain in this country. So to see that really elevates, I think, the role of libraries to bring this national libraries to local areas. You know, your parents are classical musicians and you said that they can read notes and hear music and you can read text and hear words. Um, can you elaborate on that? Describe that feeling? Obviously, uh, I'm not as talented as they were. <laughs> That's up for debate. Uh, well, not definitely in that uh, field. Uh, my father's family, it's long line of people in music and teaching music. And my mom was one, had a few relatives, but she was naturally talented. And so uh, when they got together, you know, the expectations when they had a child were pretty high. Uh, but by the time I was 12, we all agreed because when you have, when you're around people, I've had the experience of, and you know what talent is and you don't have it, you know, you don't have it. It's okay. And they didn't push me into that. But what would happen while they were practicing, my dad was violin, my mom piano, and she they would practice. They would put, I would be under the piano with dolls first and toys and then picture books and things like that. And so I always had that. It's interesting, music behind reading 
was part of it, but I could see, and I took to the text like they were reading the notes and hearing that, and that was just a connection. And so it's very interesting to be part of an institution that has one of the largest music collections, Stradivarius violins and the uh, papers of, and manuscripts of Leonard Bernstein, oh, Jelly Roll Morton. <laughs> They have original things of Mozart. We have a lock of Beethoven's hair, all of Paganini, Rachmaninoff, all of these names, uh, Rogers and Hammerstein, just phenomenal. And of course, George and Ira Gershwin. And to see in his own hand, George Gershwin's summertime and how he changed Mammy and Pappy. Really? Yeah, you could see he did it. And one of my colleagues, he always talks about the song, uh, My Favorite Things. These are a few of my favorite things. Yes. Well, it started out, and we have that um, uh, on note paper, things that I like. And that's what it was going to be. And that wasn't working out for the lyricist. It wasn't working out. And then when he switched to favorite things, bee stings, all of that, it went. And we also have, I don't know if you remember last year, the Parkland kids sang Seasons of Love. Yes. By Jonathan Larson. We have his archive. And so oh, we were able to God. put up on yellow note paper, and it's on our website, his calculation, 920, you know, the 525,600 minutes. Okay. So the rent composer. Yeah, Jonathan Larson. We have his calculation that you were just singing. We have it. Wow. So just to, the irony for me is the child of musicians to now be the guardian of all of these <laughs> musical treasures is not lost on me. <laughs> 525,600 minutes. How do you measure, measure a year? Your, your enthusiasm for these historical findings is infectious. Also, your connecting with the personal side of these stories or these huge figures. It seems like you're finding something very personal to connect with these public figures um, who maybe are have been on a pedestal or have become symbols in history. You've looked at documents and really huge moments in your life. You're so I, right. <laughs> and I have to jump in because when I'm thinking of you and what you're saying, Teddy Roosevelt, we have all of his diaries. And when he put on February 14th, Valentine's Day, he puts a big X and he says, the light has gone out of my life because his mother and his wife died in, on the same day in his house. Oh, my God. But that's when he went off to the West and he started doing other things. And, but it was because of grief. And Clara Barton, the person who started the Red Cross, she suffered from depression. And we have her diary. So we're thinking of making sure that we put up the personal for all of these figures so that people look at them as not as these people on the pedestal who did all these extraordinary things, but they were ordinary people who did extraordinary things and that you can too. So a lot of it is to give people a sense of inspiration, hope by saying that these people did these things that you read about and you hear about, they're legendary, but also they had, they were human. 
And that's what resonates. That's why I jump in because that's what I find so compelling about biographies and learning about what other people had to go through. You know, where I've lived in the past in some areas, the libraries have kind of serve as a myriad of social functions in a way. Like one neighborhood I, I lived in, the, the library was kind of served as almost like a daytime homeless shelter. Um, yes. Can you talk a little bit about this burden on libraries? Well, it's not a burden, though. It is one of the hardest things for libraries to be closed during a national crisis. Is very hard for the public librarians in particular because they are usually the places that are sanctuaries, that are non-judgmental, they're bipartisan. This is where you go for help. When you mentioned homeless, uh, there are a lot of people who need a place where they can go in a safe and quite a few public libraries now have social workers in the library librarians don't see it as a burden i think the only way you could think about that is you might not have all the resources you need to provide the services so there are a lot of partnerships that go on for instance in baltimore we partnered with the health department and they would come in and give flu shots and give workshops wow you know i really hear you talk about your role as um, as really seeing the intersection of this institution providing a cross between community and learning. I think that was also really exemplified in your decision in 2015 in Baltimore to keep the libraries open after the tragic death of Freddie Gray. And uh, after the riots broke out, I mean, there was, you know, lots of chaos outside, but a kind of... Um, eye of the storm inside, inside the libraries. That's why I know that it's so difficult for my colleagues to have to be closed for, and rightfully so, for just basic safety and health right now, because libraries have always been that sanctuary during that time. And before that time, during natural disasters, Hurricane Katrina, they had um, libraries were the first responders in many ways in communities of being places that people could go, get online, communicate, places where social services were provided for the communities. Uh, a young librarian, he'd only been in, on the job three weeks, Scott Bonner in Ferguson, Missouri. Just imagine, three weeks on the job, you're in Ferguson, it's a small library, and all stuff breaks out. And he made sure that that library became the center uh, for the community. They started having classes there and all of these things. So it, in times of need, libraries are those places that people go to. So I, I know that we'll be the first ones, and I still say we, but we'll be the first ones back on track to help people during this time too. Coming up, Carla defends every American's right to privacy in their library history in the aftermath of 9-11. And she digs into my own family history. That's after the break. Before Carla Hayden served as the gatekeeper and steward to the world's largest library as the director of the Library of Congress, she was the president of the American Library Association. 
And during her tenure, she spoke out against specific provisions of the Patriot Act, which was passed through Congress two months after 9-11 by the Bush administration to aid in investigating and prosecuting terrorists. Carla wanted to protect librarians and library users' search history. In your role as, as a leader in information services and democratizing information, as it as it can really impact people. I mean, you were, um, you know, opposed to the 2003 Patriot Act, and there's this whole other kind of complex layer around the Child Internet Protection Act. I was wondering if you can maybe talk a little bit about those. It was interesting yeah. because it wasn't opposition to the act itself. I was, at the time, uh, president of the American Library Association, which is the largest grouping that supports libraries and librarians. Uh, national organization started in 1876, and Melville Dewey was one of the founders. So, Oh, Dewey, he thought that women would be great librarians. That's a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> Yeah, that's another can of worms. Let's just say he had uh, his his ideas about women weren't very enlightened at the time. Uh, but after 9-11 and there were so many concerns and librarians shared those concerns about national safety, there was one provision, section 215, I remember it, uh, that was problematic in terms of balancing interest in a subject or material and a possible intent to do something illegal. And librarians really felt strongly that this provision that allowed at the time the government to look at what people were looking at without being able to tell the person that you were having your records looked at and we made our concerns heard, largely because of the efforts of librarians. People realized if librarians got upset about something, it might be something. That's where our stereotype helped us. <laughs> so that's where librarians are guardians of the public's right to know, because an interest in a subject does not mean you intend to do something. You might want to know, what's jihad? That doesn't mean you want to join. You want to know what it is. And for these moments where you've had to really flex your muscles as a guardian, do you find yourself relying on your expertise or relying on rationale and an argument or precedent? The reason I ask this question is because so many women I interview, they have learned to communicate or operate in patriarchal systems in a way that they can be most effective. And that really, sometimes that means not really being themselves or, um, you know, having to do something in like a, a certain format. So it's really heard. Can you speak to that? Oh, and, I, and I'm smiling and, and chuckling a little bit because I've been involved and I'm much older now. And that's been a theme as yeah. I was a children's librarian. I started out as a children's librarian and still am a children's librarian at heart. And I have found that some of those experiences doing story time with three and four-year-olds have helped me. Oh, tell us. Uh, in pretty high-powered meetings. In <laughs> fact, at the American Library Association, we had a, um, 
a session on how being a children's librarian will help you be a director of a library or do anything in management. And if you can have and keep the attention and keep control of 20 preschoolers, you can be in a pretty high powered meeting and deal with so and so. And in fact, one of our management uh, exercises we had for an executive uh, group, we had everyone bring in a photo of themselves between the ages of five and 10 and put that in front of them as we had the meeting. And it was really funny because you you would see, well, there's so-and-so, uh, John, you kind of look the same. And sometimes you think, and you act the same. <laughs> Before Carl and I got on the phone for our conversation, I had mentioned to her team that my great aunt submitted photos to the Library of Congress. This was probably around the 1940s and 50s from Atlanta, Georgia. I was interested when you talked about your great aunt and what she did and, and that, I, if you wouldn't mind, if we have a moment. Sure. Um, yeah, because I think that's important that uh, people could and still can submit materials and that it's important to have those histories from all different points of view and different experiences. In fact, during this time, with the pandemic, we're going to be collecting more oral histories and asking people, how is this affecting you? And what does it make you think about in your life? My mom, for instance, has been talking about uh, World War II and, as a kid and what she experienced and the fear and all of this. So just having that and having photos, uh, that's something. My father's family has been in Georgia since the Revolutionary War. And his aunt was, I know for sure that she found two photographs from right around 1900, 1901, 1902 of her family uh, that she, she donated to the Library of Congress. And she also kept meticulous records personally and of her entire family. She did a family tree. And there are two photos. One photo is... Um, just of the family outside of the house with um, three servants who were, you know, people of color. And that also really shocked me because part of that kind of Georgia, it wasn't us narrative, like, oh, we were too poor to have, you know, any servants or anything like that. Or we never were associated with slavery, you know, that kind of rhetoric. And then to see a photograph from 1900 where there's um, three servants in the photo. And, you know, we don't even know that that brings up a lot of questions for me. It's interesting. And I'm writing some notes as you're talking and I'm, I definitely will get that and to get your great aunt's name and all of that will go off record because we're always that. But that's just an example of what happened when the African-American Museum, the Smithsonian's National Museum, went out into communities and said, what do you have? What do you, what have families been holding on to? And, and those stories are so important because they give such context to the image and they open up discussions. Those three servants, what did they look like? Where was the house? All of these things lead you down roads that we're trying to get kids to realize they can be history detectives. <laughs> How was it for you knowing these stories that you think 
helps us make better decisions in the present. You have your support from family and friends and colleagues and all of that, but it, it helps to realize that you're part of a larger story and give you the fortitude sometimes to say, okay, I'm not, it might, this might've been a bad day or a bad week, or this is a tough situation, but I've got to stick in there because you think about what people went through so that you could be having this situation that you're in. And that's what is such a motivator for me. Harriet Tubman didn't do all those things just so you could say, oh, this meeting was terrible or <laughs> I didn't get to do that. No, that was not what it was all about. Okay. It's like Coming up, we get to the bottom of why Carla is usually photographed wearing blue. We crack that case wide open after the break. Well, that moves us to our final round. I call this truth or truth. We go light after we go deep. Just some quick fire questions. Is there a song that you love that has more meaning for you now that you are a guardian of music? Well, I have to say the things from The Sound of Music and also the fact that when I was little, before my parents would... uh, start to practice my dad would pay play a song the banjo and the fiddle and it was like a little thing the banjo and the fiddle would do it and over time i always loved it. and that was the signal to me once he played that then i had to be quiet and they would practice and when i got to the library of congress i mentioned it and they found a copy of that and had it printed for me and everything and it was wonderful The color blue seems important to you. This is something that I've noted, maybe because I have such an affinity for this specific color that I see you wear a lot. It's actually your photo in in this particular blue uh, blazer is um, the first image I think we launched our podcast Instagram with. Oh, that's <laughs> it's so wonderful. It's this color that's cobalt, lapis, almost like an Eve Klein blue. Yes, and that's it reminds me of I was uh, born in Tallahassee, Florida, and sometimes we would go and see and take trips to um, see the ocean and things. And just it's just such a calming color, blue. It's just and it's just pretty and it reminds you of the sky and the water and everything. So I've always liked blue. It's just been a color that I just when I see it, I just want to all. I love it. Do you still live in the same building as your mother? Oh, yes. We live in the same building. And it's interesting because now with the working from home, I can take a lunch break and be with her. And that's been something. She's 88 now. I think she wouldn't mind. I've already said she was born in 31. so. (laughs) (laughs) But it's been fun to listen and to her talk about and reflect about what's going on now as she's watching different things she's a news junkie so she's watching all of these things she's thinking about it she's making connections i mentioned the world war ii thing uh she's 
making comments that we might be a little spoiled. We never had to go through rationing. That's very true. We haven't. And that they would, uh, at one period, they had to pretend that they had on stockings and they would take a uh, eyebrow pencil and put a line up the back of their legs to like the seam to pretend they had on stockings things like that that are coming out been kind of fun you know what they would do thank you this has been delightful thank you this has been so fun white dresses with blue satin sashes snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes silver white winters that melt into springs these are a few of my favorite things You can follow Dr. Carla Hayden's work and discover the treasures of the Library of Congress at loc.gov. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Special thanks to Nora Kipnis, Matthew Reed, and Gail Reed. You can find our show on Instagram at thewomenpod. Next week is our last episode of the first season. I'll be talking to Jewel about her journey, writing her first songs in her car while she was homeless as a teenager, healing after some really big betrayals, and her upcoming album. And if you like this episode, tell a friend about it. It really helps our show grow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.